I had never been as angry as I was in 11th grade American literature at Garfield High School in Woodbridge, Virginia. Because in our unit on American literature, I had been forced against my will to read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, um, congregational clergyman and former uh, uh, president of Princeton Seminary. The sermon was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I had only just begun to believe that there might be a God. I had been atheist, and I had just come to the realization there had to be some source of goodness at the heart of the universe, uh, intelligent, strong, and powerful, who had communicated good and evil to us. I had come to that conclusion because it was the only logical point I could come to, and yet here he was calling us all sinners and, and saying that God was angry. We're going to read a passage. I was not yet a believer, but we're going to read a passage in which Jesus does talk about hell. It's in the form of a parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's from Luke, the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. These are the words of Jesus Christ. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. There is no Christian teaching that people find more disturbing than the doctrine of hell. Even conservative Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul said that this was the one biblical teaching that most disturbed him. I mean, how could anyone with even the, the smallest amount of love 
not find this disturbing. I mean, you just look at how offensive Jonathan Edwards was to me as, as a high school student. Um, but admittedly, at that time, I had a distorted view of the Christian teaching on hell. I pictured God hurtling down people into a pit as they begged and pleaded for mercy. All the while, God responds, too late, down you go, now you're going to suffer. And so down they go into this big hole in the ground with fire shooting up where they're tortured with devils and pitchforks forever. Uh, and this view misrepresents, it's a common view of what Christians think about hell, but it misrepresents the nature of, of hell. Even in this parable, the, the, the focus is on the great chasm that has been fixed, the permanence, the distance. Uh, you know, you think of, of 2 Thessalonians uh, where Paul says that they will be shut out from the presence of God and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes. Uh, you know, to be shut out from God's presence, eternal separation from the one for whom we were made. You know, we were made to live in a garden, walking around not needing clothes because there was nothing shameful about us or about our bodies. Uh, we had no sin, and we were there to be seen by God and, and loved by God and to be an intimate relationship with God, living coram Deo before the face of God. And, 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 and we were designed to reflect him back at himself as if we are mirrors, imaging God in his likeness, uh, you know, continually receiving life and love and wisdom and goodness from that intimate union with God that we had at the beginning. And yet, what happens when you're completely separated from the source of all goodness? To lose that presence is to lose our human ability to flourish, to thrive, to be what humanity was meant to be. Even in this life, we may stray very far from God, but we're nevertheless beneficiaries of what theologians call common grace, the goodness that God still preserves this fallen world and keeps it from being a place of complete and utter torment. Jesus said that God sends the sun and the rain on the righteous and the sinner at the same time because God loves his creation. And so with common grace, he sustains it, even in its fallen condition. But... but but to be removed from God's presence completely, to be shut out from the presence of God, to have this great chasm that is fixed with no ability to move from one side to the other. It's, 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 it's to have even common grace removed from us. What does humanity come separated completely from the one whose image we bear? One can only speculate about what we become ripped apart from the only environment in which humanity was designed to thrive. That is the presence of God. We would lose our very ability to give and receive love. Imagine eternity without love. This helps explain the very biblical images for hell. They, they seem comp contradictory if you take them literally, but each of them is speaking figuratively of, of different aspects of, of of what Jesus is talking about here. You know, Jesus talks about hell as an outer darkness. That's a place of cold, not a fire. It's a place of loneliness, lacking warmth, lacking light. He uses the phrase destruction. Uh, they'll be punished in 2 Thessalonians with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Destruction is, is a total waste or something becoming a total loss, like 
when Jesus speaks of those who gain the whole world but lose their very soul. They gain the whole world, but they lose their selfhood. And then there's this picture here in this parable of fire. Fire disintegrates things. It breaks them down. And we, we think, even in this life, we see how sin disintegrates us already. Uh, you know, you see somebody who's narcissistic, and you see the way that their self-centeredness brings about a dissolution and a disintegration to people all around them. If you look at the narcissism, it, their biggest victim is themselves. The way the narcissist will twist and distort the world around them to fit their paranoid delusion of what's actually true in their never-ending drive to be important, the opposite is happening to them at the spiritual level. Their soul is disintegrating before your eyes. Their very humanity is disintegrating before your eyes as you listen to the paranoia and the fear and the manipulation and the anger and the abuse and the bitterness and the rage and the denial of what's actually true. It's a disintegration of the soul already starting in this life. Look at the account here of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man does not even ask to be removed from hell. He doesn't want to be in the presence of God. He's tried to get away from God his whole life. It's clear that he's not in any way, shape, or form changed for the better. In fact, he treats Lazarus as a common slave, assuming that because Lazarus had been a beggar during his earthly life, he would therefore be sent to hell to dip his finger in and help him out by giving him water. The rich man's still barking orders. And the most interesting fact is that in this account of eternity, Lazarus keeps his name. His name is Lazarus. He was born and named Lazarus. He lived Lazarus. He died Lazarus. And in the presence of God at Abraham's side in heaven, he is still Lazarus. He still has his identity. He still has his soul. He still has his selfhood. He's still him, just perfected and freed from all his suffering. But rich man, that's his name. He's lost his name. He's lost his soul. He's lost his sense of selfhood. He doesn't have a name because what he chased after and longed for and lived for all of his life is all that's left of him. His humanity has been disintegrated into an echo of what it once was. He no longer goes by a name, but simply by the fact that before he died, he was rich. Hell is like a, a fire in that it disintegrates the soul. It breaks us apart. Uh, it, it's like what you see when, when struggling with substance abuse. Um, it can bring about a disintegration of a life a disintegration of a soul. You watch somebody you love very, very, very deeply. And, and you watch them as they're overtaken by this addictive disorder. And, and every month you see them flourishing less and less. You see the isolation that sets in. An honest person begin, begin, becomes a deceitful person, lying because they're diminishing in service to their addiction. You see the way they begin to blame shift the way they blame others. They begin to wallow in self-pity. You can see their self-absorption taking over and they turn on any friendship or any family member or any former love or anything that might threaten their addiction because the addiction is taking over and pushing them out and they become less and less of the person they were. It should, it should make you angry because of the destruction that is done to a human person made in God's image as this substance takes over 
and they begin to disintegrate. It's like the man who just became rich man, because that's all that was left. And it's something that is already at work in this life as it was with the rich man. See, hell is a trajectory of the soul. It's a trajectory that begins in this life. Before his death, the rich man's life was already a long way down a path toward its destruction. Jesus said there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even dogs, it's unclean animals according to Hebrew law came and licked his sores. It's a, a human being who is just in terrible, terrible distress. And the rich man steps over him on his front steps every day on his way to make more money. Doesn't even give him the scraps off his table. Has no recognition that this man is made in God's image. That this is an effigy of God, an icon of, of the Lord. He's just in his way, lowering his property values by laying on his steps. What damage would have been done to the rich man's soul? How distorted God's image in him to be able to have not be moved by compassion in any way, but day after day stepping over this man instead of sacrificing for him, loving him, even sending a servant to give him food. Hell is a trajectory of the soul. And it starts in this life. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer stop it. There may come a day when, 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 when there's no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell, he writes. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. In his fictional novel, The Great Divorce, Lewis compares hell to the ever-expanding suburbs of London, to people trying to get further and further and further away from each other, a gray town where people are constantly moving further out, and few of those who live there even realize that they're in hell. In his story, in many ways, their experience is much like the experience they had while on earth, seemingly meaningless, joyless, lonely, uncomfortable, they continue on that trajectory they began while on earth, but now without common grace, without God. And the seeming meaninglessness of this life uh, merely projects forward into an eternity. Imagine if you were to take all the insecurities and anxieties of this life, all the fears, all the pain, all the tears, all the agony, everything that's wrong, and make that infinite in a trajectory into eternity. The narrator in, vision, in Lewis's vision uh, 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 points out that all that's left is the grumble. At one point, the narrator finds himself waiting at a bus stop in hell. Lewis writes, and what about the earlier arrivals? I mean, there must be people who came from Earth to your town even longer ago. Well, that's right, there are. They've been moving on and on, getting further apart. They, they, 
They're so far off by now that they could never even think of coming to the bus stop at all. Astronomical distances. There's a bit of rising ground near where I live and a, a chap has a telescope and you can see the lights on in the inhabited houses where these old ones live millions of miles away, millions of miles from us and from one another. And every now and then they move further still. That's one of the disappointments. I thought you'd meet all these interesting historical characters, but you don't. They're too far away by the time you get here. Well, would they get to the bus stop in time if they ever did set out? Well, theoretically, but it'd be a distance of light years, and they wouldn't, uh, and they wouldn't want to by now. Not those old chaps like Tamerlane and Genghis Khan or Julius Caesar or Henry V wouldn't want to. That's right. The nearest of those old ones is Napoleon. We know that because two chaps made a journey to see him. They started long before I came, of course, but I was there when they came back. About 15,000 years of our time it took them. We picked out the house by now. It's just a little pinprick of light and nothing else near it for millions of miles. But they got there. That's right. He built himself a huge house, all in the empire style, rows of windows flaming with light, though it only shows as a pinprick from where I live. Did they see Napoleon? That's right. They went up and looked through one of the windows. Napoleon was there all right. What was he doing? Walking up and down, and down and up, all the time, left, right, right, left, never stopping for a moment. Two chaps watched him for about a year, and, and he never once rested, and muttering to himself all the time, it was, it was Souk's fault, it was Ney's fault, it was Josephine's fault, it was the fault of the Russians, it was the fault of the English. Like that all the time, never stopped for a moment. A little fat man, and he looked kind of tired, but he didn't seem able to stop. It begins with a grumble. Hell is a trajectory of the soul. A life spent avoiding God becomes an eternal trajectory of flight from God. And ultimately, yet tragically, on one level, everybody gets what they want. Notice here in Jesus' parable, the rich man is trying to make hell more comfortable. He's not trying to get out. He doesn't want to be released from it. In Lewis's vision of hell, there's a, a bus tour of the foothills of heaven. So people in hell could take a bus tour, very English 1940s kind of thing to do. Not the great houses of England, but, but you know the houses of heaven. And, and so uh, as the bus veers upward, through the sky into the bright sunlight that lies beyond the gloomy clouds that shroud the city below, they approach heaven in this tour bus. Uh, and as they do so, their bodies of the inhabitants of hell become increasingly gaseous and non-solid while the world around them becomes more and more real, more and more alive, more and more solid. And so these ghosts in their bus tour of heaven experience a world of stunning beauty, but within which they are no longer able to properly exist. Every blade of grass is so solid against their ghost-like bodies that they recoil in pain. A single leaf on the ground is so heavy that it's impossible for them to lift. They begin to beg to return, to go back down to hell below. Old friends in heaven come out to meet them, shining and gleaming brightly as spirits in heaven. They beg them to repent and to come into heaven. Yet one by one, the tourists from hell choose to return whence they came. Their excuses are as shallow as their thin apparitions. 
An artist refuses to enter heaven because he must preserve the reputation of his school of painting. A bitter cynic predicts that heaven is really just a trick. A man named only Big Man refuses because he sees in heaven people of lesser social rank than he. C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God in the end says, no, thy will be done. All that are in hell, he says, choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and consistently desires joy in Jesus will ever miss it. So, question. Does believing in something like hell, whatever you call it, whatever it looks like, make followers of Jesus into narrow-minded people? It's a fair question. You know, somebody says, why, Greg, would you want to believe in something like that? And, and it's a fair question, but it, it's also a question that assumes too much. I don't want to believe in hell. Nobody said anything about wanting to believe this. Jesus frequently warned those who would listen to him about the danger of human destiny beyond the grave. He spoke frequently about the danger of stepping into eternity without him, without forgiveness, without grace, without being reconciled to God. Uh, it was, if Jesus was telling the truth, then there's a reality we have to deal with. And if Jesus was not accurate, then we don't really know what we have to deal with. But it's not a question of what you want to believe. Believing that the earth is round is not a question of personal preference, for example. The earth is round, not perfectly round, but round enough so it looks round to us. You can have other beliefs about the earth being flat if you want, but they're not grounded in reality. It's make-believe. When Jesus made certain claims, he was making objective claims about what reality is. They may have been accurate or inaccurate, but his accuracy is not based on my preference. I could be right, I could be wrong. Jesus could be right, Jesus could be wrong. But we're not picking out our favorite ice cream flavors here. I wouldn't want anybody to go to hell because I'm a sinner and God gave me grace and snatched me from it. And so my hope is that everybody goes there. But Jesus says it's not going to happen, but this is not about personal preference. It's about believing something because Jesus tells you that it's true and you trust Jesus. You put it this way. Imagine that you and your friend have just woken up with no memory of where you were or how you got there and you were in the middle of a dark dungeon-like labyrinth and you don't know how you got there. You have no clue. And so you don't know how you got here, whether their intentions was, were good or evil. Is it a big joke that your friends played on you? Is this something really sinister and evil happening here? Um, but all you know is you're in this labyrinth in the dark. And as you try to work your way through the various you know, chambers and hallways to try to find your way out, you come across a little area with, with an inset in the stone and a table and a glass Erlenmeyer flask with a bubbly green liquid in it and a post-it note stuck to it that says, drink me. Now, do you drink it? Your friend is convinced it's all a joke, probably something your friend sprung on you, and the stuff is probably harmless. So your friend thinks it's perfectly fine to drink the green liquid. You, however, are unsure. You suspect that somebody may have put you in this labyrinth without your consent, which means that their intentions are not good and they're not respecting God's image in you. 
And so you suspect that this potion might actually be dangerous. It might actually harm you or kill you if you drink it because it might be some chemical compound that's not suitable for human ingestion. So here's the question. Are you being narrow-minded by thinking that there's a risk or a danger in drinking that Erlenmeyer flask of bubbly green liquid? Your friend lays into you. You people are so narrow. Why would you want to believe that this flask is dangerous? Who would want to believe that? You and your best friend disagree over whether to drink it. Who is more narrow? See, your disagreement is not because one of you wants to believe that the potion is destructive and the other one wants to believe it's safe. It's that one of you believes it is safe and one of you believes it may not be, that there's a real danger. And the one of you that believes there's a real danger is not believing that because she is more narrow-minded. And given the stakes, uh, if what Jesus says is correct, the stakes are a whole lot higher than drinking or not drinking the green liquid. Consider what it is that we're talking about. When we discuss the concept of God, we're not discussing the Easter Bunny. We're talking about an entity that, if it exists, is terrifyingly bright and terrifyingly vast. Uh, you said, Greg, I don't want to believe in a God like that. Well, perhaps, but if you look at the sun and you stare at it intently, it will burn out your eyeballs and you will go blind because it is too bright. Its, it's, it's light is too strong that your eyes can't bear the light. Now, how about the God who made the sun and who made a billion other stars many, many times larger and brighter than that? How bright must his light be? Do you think you would be able to look at it when God said to Moses, you cannot look at me and live? What if it's all true? You know, we have accounts of what are called distressing near-death experiences. In a 2014 journal article, which you can find on the uh, website of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Bruce Grayson, MD, discusses his scientific research into what the literature calls distressing near-death experiences. This is where, you know, you have, you're dying on the operating table and you have this view of a, a long, you know, dark tunnel and a light at the end and there all your family and friends are waiting in a beautiful green valley, only it's not like that at all. These are the ones where it's actually something quite distressing that is experienced and described by those coming back from these near-death experiences. Uh, Grayson is the Chester, Chester F. Carlson Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences and the Director of the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. In his research, he describes how some described an encounter with a vast emptiness, a devastating scenario of aloneness, of isolation and annihilation, one woman describes how she felt the aloneness, the emptiness of space, the vastness of the universe, except for me, she wrote, a mere ball of light screaming in the darkness. Still others in his study described what he called hellish NDEs, which may be the least common type of distressing near-death experience. In one, he describes a woman being escorted through a frighteningly desolate landscape and saw a group of wandering spirits and they looked lost and in pain, but her guide indicated she was not allowed to help them. Another woman described hideous beings, the sounds of their guttural moaning and the indescribable stench still remained fresh in her memory 41 years later. She wrote, there was no benign being of light, no life video, nothing beautiful, nothing pleasant. I'm not a scientist, 
My PhD is in historical theology. It is very possible that these distressing near-death experiences were creations of the subconscious mind trying to make sense of images coming from the brainstem during a time of, of, of mental shutdown. But it's still pretty disturbing. I mean, what if it's real? If there is an intelligence behind space and time, then it's obvious that something is terribly wrong with the world. We, we see a world of glory, but also a, a world of shame, of beauty, but also suffering and death. Everything about us is, is telling us that the world ought to be a certain way, and that it's not that way, that it was created good, but it's fallen, and we need a redeemer to step in to say that, that to, 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 to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. Only Christianity accounts for, for all of this, and it brings us back to this question of the justice of God against our sin, against our cruelty, against all the ways we fail to measure up to the best of humanity that God designed in the beginning. It's sobering when we consider those early Christians when they wrote the Apostles' Creed. They said that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so where do we find hope? We find hope by considering the one who endured hell for us. Most biblical references to hell are from the words of Jesus. Jesus is the one who described it as this place that none may cross from there to us. Jesus is the one who spoke of two groups, one entering into eternal life and the other banished into what he called eternal fire, eternal destruction. Jesus is the one who calls it a place of eternal torment in Luke 16, unquenchable fire in Mark 9, where the worm does not die in Mark 9. Jesus is the one who says that in hell people will gnash their teeth in anguish in Matthew 13. He's the one who says there is no return, not even to warn a loved one right here in this passage. Jesus is the one who calls it a place of outer darkness in Matthew 25. He's the one, Jesus, who compares it to Gehenna, the burning garbage dump outside of the walls of Jerusalem in the valley below where people burned their trash until it utterly disintegrated. Almost everything we know about this topic comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. He shows more concern than anyone else to warn us about it. It seems often that he's warning specifically religious people about it because in their self-righteousness they don't know that they're facing an eternity without grace. Why would Jesus go to such lengths to warn us unless it were something that he himself were about to experience an experience for our sakes so that we might be free of it? Look at hell's description. It's a place of vast distance from God. Look at what Jesus entered into in the Garden of Gethsemane when for the first time in his life he prayed and cried out to the Father and the Father did not answer him because already the Father was imputing to him the sin and the shame of all of us. Jesus, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father was already putting that distance between him and his Son incarnate in Jesus. Jesus was already suffering the eternal separation from God that we were due. He was already being denied the benefits of the presence of God. He was already bearing hell on the cross crying out, my father. Jesus became the scapegoat that was driven out, carrying the sins of Israel. 
He became the substitutionary atonement, bearing our sin and being crushed and broken for it, bearing our sin for us on the cross. He was the lamb executed so that we could go free, the scapegoat driven out. He was the one damned on the cross so that we might be saved, the one who went to hell so that we might go to heaven. This was God's plan from the beginning, his plan to save, to save us so that he would experience hell in our place on the cross so that we might experience heaven in his place. And he is the one who would then come and rise from death, breaking even its power to assure for us an eternal destiny. In the 1998 movie, U.S. Marshals, um, Tommy Lee Jones plays a U.S. Marshal that is in a plane filled with convicts. You've got murderers, you've got people who have convicted of, of all sorts of horrible crimes, and they're being taken to their new destination when the plane crashes and begins sinking into a river. And the U.S. Marshal then, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, then immediately starts pulling out the crew, the pilot, the co-pilot, all of the various people working, and then he goes in as it's sinking and begins rescuing the, the passengers, the criminals, pulling out a murderer, pulling out uh, some of the, the most heinous criminals around. And, and as he's going in again and again, the, 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 the plane is getting lower and lower into the water, and there's no oxygen, and the, it's filling up, and, and it's very clear he's not going to be able to save all of them. But he goes in one more time, and you can hear from behind him somebody saying, No, don't go back in. Don't go to the bottom of the river. It was implied, not for those people, not for the unworthy, not for the criminals, not for the sinners. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. He went to the bottom of the river so that you could have life. He did it on the cross. He did it because he loves you so that you can have the certainty that where he has gone, he is preparing for you now a place where you will have life. Let's pray.